here I am. The rain is pelting down here in lockdown Melbourne, and it is tempting to begin the episode with those words because the speech we're featuring today is Here I Am by Kookaburra woman Tanya Major, delivered to Prime Minister John Howard on the Cape York Peninsula in 2003. Tanya's based in the Queensland city of Cairns, and that's near where our show supporters, Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados, had their avocado farms. They work all year tending soils, planting seeds, nurturing plants, picking fruit, dispatching fruit, perfect fruit to stores all around the country for the love of avocados. Check out their philosophies and their avocado cooking tips at lovemyavocados.com.au and they also have accounts on Facebook and Instagram. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the government yet. Speak over. With Tony Wilson. Speech lovers of the world unite. Welcome to the next episode of the Speak Ola podcast. My name is Tony Wilson, coming to you from Melbourne. Grim, gloomy, wintry Melbourne. We got rising COVID numbers. We got a lockdown. We got a state of emergency. We got police, an army on the streets. Not the sort of stuff I thought I'd ever see in an Australian city. For one of my recent radio segments, I was looking back over the best speeches of the COVID era, and one that came to mind was Jacinda Ardern's speech, putting New Zealand into lockdown. And as I re-listened to that speech, I heard that they had two cases of community transmission when they went to level four restrictions. She spoke about a small window of opportunity, and now New Zealanders are free to pretty much do whatever they want. And Victorians are locked down for six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, who knows. So much of Speakola is built up through listeners and readers sending me recommendations. And recently I got one from James McCormick, who told me about a speech from 2003 delivered by a 22-year-old Cocobera woman by the name of Tanya Major. The speech is called Here I Am, and it's a remarkable piece of writing and oratory. And so I put it on Speakola, and I also got thinking, why not try to track Tanya Major down? She's had a great career. She became Young Australian of the Year in 2007. She was the face of the Generation One road trip in 2010, where she travelled right around Australia, visiting remote communities and sharing positive stories from those communities. And even today, she runs a consulting company engaging with remote and Indigenous Australia. As part of her job, she's a public speaker, and she is just effortlessly eloquent. I listened to our chat a few times in doing the edit for the podcast, and words just form and pour out of her. I'm going to play what audio I have of Here I Am at the end of the interview. 
And I'll also play a TEDx speech that Tanya Major delivered in Melbourne in 2010. But let's get on with the interview. Tanya Major, here I am, here she is. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce our next guest on the Speakola podcast. She delivered an absolutely beautiful speech in 2003, a powerful speech to a Prime Minister, and her name is Tanya Major. How are you going, Tanya? I'm fabulous. Thank you, Tony. I'm speaking to you in Cairns today. Um, what are you doing up there in Cairns at the moment? Oh, well, it's it's my weekend, so it's kind of like recovering from being isolated uh, for such a long time with COVID, and this is kind of my second trip down to Cairns since they've lifted restrictions, so it's a bit of an excitement to be down in Cairns, having lived on the farm um, on the tablelands about two hours from Cairns. Tanya, take us back to growing up in Kawanyama and, and how you emerged as someone who would speak to a Prime Minister in 2003. I think um, growing up in a really isolated, remote Aboriginal community, I never once dreamt that I would be speaking to one of, you know, the most critical leaders in our country. At the time, you know, as a, as a barefoot child running around, enjoying the, the freedom of um, living remotely and in, in, in the middle of nowhere brings. And so... Growing up with a very strict mum and being very family oriented, yeah, never once did I ever dream of being able to stand in front of thousands and deliver some real important messages. Well, you clearly had a talent for it, and you talk a bit about education and the Cape York. Um, tell us a bit about your own education. Was there a moment where you did sort of start to stand out with this, you know, way with words and, and ability with language? Oh, I, I guess um, Aboriginal kids, like growing up in these communities, a lot of Aboriginal kids were very shy, where, where, whereas I was never the shy child. And so, I mean, I enjoyed talking. And my old people and my grandparents and my grandmother, they used to call me uh, meaning, oh, look here, made for talky, talky, talky. And so I was... I was like tongue-in-cheek, like, here comes Tanya, she can't shut up. And so <laughs> I think the once I stepped out of living, like once I stepped out of the environment of remote living in an Aboriginal community, then to boarding school and then having to do oral presentations and being able to communicate, I then started to be exposed to the various inspirational speakers and go, whoa, I actually could make a living from this. I enjoy talking. But at the same time, things need to be said. You mentioned that it's hard for the local primary school in Kawanyama to keep a teacher, or at least that was the case in the early 2000s. Did you have one that stood out for you? I had several teachers growing up in Kawanyama who really stood out, primarily women. There were, there were two women who, um, one was a Torres Strait Islander teacher, Miss Seedon, who one was the same colour as me but also was an authority figure in my life that I met every day who basically impregnated the vision that you can go somewhere if you grab education. And being who she is, being the same colour of somebody who I never thought that I could possibly relate to because the majority of the teachers in my life were all not my colour and came from a completely different culture. 
So there was this one amazing teacher and then there was um, another teacher who basically took me under her wing from high school onwards and then became my guardian at boarding school and rocked up to all my parent-teacher interview. So in a way, I was able to relate to these women teachers who continued to have a relationship with me as not only my teacher in Koenyama, but also my sounding board and my teacher in life, if that makes sense, because all the other teachers we couldn't really relate to, they were there for two years of their life and then they left, they'd done their remote service. Or that was the last, in some cases, not all teachers who go to the communities, but that was the place that they couldn't get any job anywhere else and they just needed to get back into mainstream. So they saw that as an opportunity to get out. And you said that there was a standard differential, like that you remember being an A student when you were a student in Kawanyama and then you go down to Brisbane and suddenly you're a C and D student. And that's something you mentioned in the speech. And is that very much the case? It, it still is. I mean, like my A's now, when I look across the education sector in these remote communities, wouldn't even be worth the A. It's on a piece of paper. These kids who are exiting the system in these remote communities can barely read or write. And I, having come from being an A student and going to Brisbane and then really being challenged to step up and own my game and get into this game, um, really challenged me. But now these kids in these communities, like they're graduating from grade 12, you look across a NAPLAN results, you do, you do an independent baseline assessment of them they finished grade 12 but they're reading and writing of a year three or year five when i read that at that point in time to the prime minister i actually had come from the system and i've been trying to actively challenge the system since then i've come back with my policy hat on but also life experience in community development and understanding how do we influence policy with evidence-based research going back into the schools and looking at the standardised test that's used across all Australian schools, which doesn't discriminate. It's across every school in the country, which is NAPLAN. And I've used that tool to help parents understand the importance of them to really step up and take and influence their kids to actually demand better in their education. You've got a knack with the story and the trajectory of a story and with words. Was there, was there an actual story, I, I guess a book, or was it oral storytelling that where something really connected with you, a, a favourite text or a favourite story? There were so many stories. I mean, Aboriginal culture is traditionally an oral culture. So us as children sitting beside the fireplace out on country, we actually had to learn to listen. And we had to learn to be able to tell a story. And because we're such an oral culture, it's all passed down through our ability to tell a good yarn and be in a good yarn and to bring people along that good yarn so they're there with you at that point in time. And so as a child, you knew those who were the, the, the amazing storytellers because you wanted to listen to them. And I always thought as a child, whoa, I want to be like you where people want to actually listen to me, but at the same time, get paid for it. Who was the best you heard as a kid? Oh, my grandparents. Yeah. There were so many old men and women. There were old men who would 
capture you. Like, you know, there was an event where I think I was, I don't know, 10 or 12 and my grandfather, like they were in the middle of negotiating with government and the government official, the minister at that time got up and he drew something on a board and he drew, you know, this is how we're going to divvy the pie out. And and they were looking at percentage and my old people are like, oh, we're not across percentage. They let the official finish speaking and then one of the um, the old men goes to the official, thank you, sir. Thank you, Minister, for, for the opportunity to, you know, be, be privy to what you're saying at this point in time. But we as Indigenous people do not want the pie. We want the cart that carries the pie. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. <laughs> It was just brilliant in his ability and their ability to translate that and have the entire crowd of, you know, Indigenous leaders, yes, yes, and, and, and across that. And so for me, I wanted to be able to to be able to eloquently bring not only the official across the bigger picture and be strategic about it, but be at the same level as my people. You mentioned Noel Pearson in the speech saying he was an important part of your childhood and your education and indeed a sponsor can you can you tell us about Noel Pearson and you he would be one of the best orators in this country you know when when I look across people's being able to to public speak and use of words and the ability to hold a crowd he is just brilliant. His Whitlam eulogy is on our site um, on Speakola as, as one of the great speeches of the last decade in Australia. The This old man motif that he repeats through that speech is, is, is quite masterful. That's exactly right. And, like, um, he has been a big influence in my life and I am indebted to him and the elders who, you know, have inspired him. And so, um, no, I, I, I really respect him. So how did you get to be at that microphone just after, I mean, you were 22 years old. Tell us about uh, what happened in, in those last years of school and the early years of young adulthood. Oh, well, the funny, the funny thing, Tony, is the, how I met Noel was, because well, it was Noel who paid for my education, right? Noel actually um, paid out of his own pocket to pay for my education. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and I'm forever um, indebted for him to see see me, not just me as the little Aboriginal child from a remote Aboriginal community, but see the human potential, the potential that I had, and to be able to invest in that potential. And and why did he pick you, T- Tanya? What what did he? When did... Because okay, I'm laughing here because I was about what eleven, ten, eleven, and we were chasing a pig. See, we used to have pet pigs and pet wallabies and pet ducks and whatever animal we found in the bush, like, to eat, we'd, we'd eat it. And then if they had a baby, we'd take home the babies to look after and and care for. And so anyway, we had a saddle. Like, we, my, my brothers used to do stock work and we had a saddle. And we figured, you know, what else? And uh, on a Saturday afternoon, kids to do in a remote community when they had this big porker, you know, this big, big boar named Roger. And we were trying to catch Roger to saddle Roger up so we can ride him like the Bronx, like the rodeo. Yeah. And this man just was walking along the way and walking with one of the teachers, Ani Darcy, and I stopped and I noticed him because I only saw him on television 
about three days ago and he was talking about the 10-point plan and the WIC plan and Arakoon in Parliament House in front of the Prime Minister. I stopped and I walked up to him and I said to him, hey, mate, I know who you are. You're that lawyer. You're from Hotel. And I started to give him a rundown of what I saw. And then I shook his hand and I was so proud to meet him because I saw him on TV and, you know, and blah, 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 and had a conversation with him. And little did I know that that had a huge impact on him when my mum was looking for sponsorship because my mum was selling cakes and selling food so she can get me through school because my mum didn't have the money nor the education because my mum only was allowed to go to grade four and had to work as a station hand with my grandma. And my grandma weren't allowed to run a business because, um, because she was a woman. And I've got all these documents. And anyway, and so from that first meeting, I really had no idea that Noel Pearson would be the person behind me getting a high school education and paying, paying for me. He must have seen the confidence in you. And you, and apparently you say you're six foot two now. You, you must have been, you know. I was a big kid. A big kid and a, and a, <laughs> and a confident kid. And a, obviously to bowl up to him, a kind of boisterous and garrulous kid. And you must have kind of won him as she's the one I can help here. She's a goer. Yeah. Like I was, I was really taken back because um, – you know, when I was at boarding school, every now and then I'd get these care packages and these care packages that Noel would organise, like from the, like these, these group of old Israeli women would have a raffle for me and would send me, you know, about $300. This is back in the, in the 90s, you know, and $300 was a lot of money in those days for a kid in, the, in, in a boarding school. But little did I know now, after meeting people who've had events, we're actually supporting me and it all, like, now I'm so much more, like, not, I've always been grateful, but it just hits me of how people believe in other people and support people and that's why, like, now as a mother um, and a lot more older, I still can't give up on people in my community and helping and still advance what we're still trying to do to make sure that every child deserves an equitable education. When you finished boarding school, you chose criminology. Um, where, where did you study that, Tanya? Um, I went to Griffith University. So um, at Griffith University, I started, I actually started off doing a visual arts degree. Well, you know, in the 90s, you can't really make money from the arts. And I just didn't want to be singled out as the Indigenous dot painter. And so I kind of said to my mum and dad, I don't want to do this. And then within the next day, I um, changed change electives and I studied criminology. And I've always wanted to be a police officer. And I figured from a young age, you know, if I was the law, I would just, you know, make everything right. And then having done a cross-disciplinary major in community development and history, I realised there and that at 21 or 20, that that's not what I want to be. Because in actual fact, um, I want to prevent people coming in contact with the police or even getting locked up. So I, um, I finished my criminology degree and then I got into community development and I did a couple of years in community development. And then from there, I yeah, I did a lot of community development work in making sure that um, Indigenous kids got scholarships to go to the schools, like the Clayfield College's schools in Brisbane, like I did, where the standards are a lot more higher of you, whether you're 
you know, white, black, blue or green. They expected this standard. And that's what I wanted kids from remote communities to be exposed to, Um, not to be pitied or not to be put in special programs, but I wanted them to be able to have benchmarks that if the kid next to me can reach, I can reach. And that's when we developed all these youth programs. So to ensure that other kids from remote communities can go to boarding school and have the same opportunities like I did. And these were the ATSIC years. It was still existing as a body. And you actually became the youngest community development officer ever elected to ATSIC. Is, is that right? I became the youngest person, um, not the community development officer, but I became the youngest person ever to be elected to the Aboriginal Torres Island Commission. I was 21 at the time. And how did you do that? What was the process? Did you just kind of stand up and say, yep, I'm running? Or were you nominated? Was it, um, how did that happen? Well, I was actually, um, I'd just finished my criminology degree. I'd moved back into the community and there was all these softball and football carnival coming up and there were all these little girls who were deaf and were not coordinated and they were the rejects. So I developed these softball groups, like these young girls, so anyway, um, so I was approached by one of the um, electoral commission officers and an electoral commission officer said, oh, there's an, an, an ATSIC election coming up. Would you be interested? And I said to him, oh, look, I'll, I'll chat to you a bit later, but when you get a chance, can you drop into my work and drop off all the information? Did some research on what, what ATSIC was, what it stood for, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, what an amazing, like, kind of aligns to what I've been wanting to achieve for a long time and helping my people and being on a platform. And so I nominated. And part of the campaign was after softball training the week before the um, election, I gave my little posters to all my softball. Um, I had about 20 kids and I gave them posters. And the next morning as I was walking to work, on every light pole in the community from, you know, a foot up for because the, these were, you know, 10, 12-year-olds and yeah. small kids, there was my face stuck across every single light pole in the community. You had softball soldiers, did you, just out there working for you? I sure did. I had my softball soldiers who, to this day, I'm so grateful for because they ran out and they did basically the campaigning for me. And so you get elected. Is that is that the reason you were picked to do this speech, or was this speech before that election? No, 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 no. This speech was um, – I'd already been elected at that stage. So tell us about this speech. You hear that the Prime Minister's coming. Um, did you have much warning? How did this uh, these events unfold? Well, we, we'd had a, a regional council meeting, and we heard that the, the Prime Minister was coming – and we were due for a Cape York summit um, in Cape York in, with our regional orgs. We, we have a summit where all the communities get together and we strategically look at home ownership or whatever's on the agenda at that point in time. And one of the senior chairpersons on, on the regional council tapped me on the shoulder and said to me, um, we would like somebody to talk about youth and education. And given that you're the youngest person elected, we think you should. And I was like, me? And they're like, yeah, we honestly think you're, you know, you you embody and you embody what all our children, we aspire for our children. You know, you're from a community, you've graduated from university, you've gotten into politics um, and you're young and you still represent the youth. 
And I was like, I was like, wow, that's such an honor. And I'd already been delivering speeches. And so I had snippets of my statistics because um, I'd already been, as I said, I'd already been talking to people around education and who I am in my life. Because since I was elected at ATSIC, bang, that was like the doorway to who Tanya Major was and how she became this. And so you get chosen to deliver the speech. What about the writing process? Did you sit down and tuck yourself away and write it yourself or was it a, a- um well there was there was two of us involved in that we actually had a, a senior speechwriter not a speechwriter but a policy advisor in atsic who did a lot of advising around framing policy speeches but that original speech was mine and what we did we we did focus it around policy because i mean you know when you're writing speeches you've got to clearly target it towards audiences and I, I got sick and tired of reading about Indigenous issues and just bringing it across in the media, which is statistics, because your average Australian, Australian it's, it's marketed at a different audience, the educated audience. That's right. And this is what's so marked about this speech, that it doesn't throw any statistics around it. It starts with three very simple words, here I am. I am. And it's That's a right. beautiful start. Was that, was that the first thing you thought of or was it just... Uh... What I wanted to convey to Australia was, here I am, this is my story. Have empathy, because I always felt as a child and even going to boarding school that nobody had had any empathetic or, or, or expressed empathy towards the Aboriginal issues. I always felt that being Indigenous in this country, I was deemed as vermin that needed to be, needed to be eradicated. So basically, when drafting the speech and thinking about the speech, I wanted the rest of Australia to actually empathise with just not just the bigger issue, the bigger cause as it's always projected in the media or that the high debt rates of this, but I wanted them to empathise with me as a human, not me as the Aboriginal. And I thought then talking about my personal life, because, look, I, I've been abused in the streets and, and even at boarding school, some of the 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 racist comment, the racist, oh, it doesn't apply to you, Tanya, though, even though, but even though, but it's racist, yeah. you don't say that. Yeah. And, and and now that I'm a bit older, people are a lot more conscious when you call them out and it's actually a lot more consciousness to it. But when I was a child, it was okay. And I, and I never thought it was okay because the internal dialogue for me was my race is shit, my race is... Uh, lazy, my race is, and then the constant fight of, no, I'm better than that. No, I'm human. No, I'm a girl. I have dreams. I have desires. And I wanted to be able to portray that to the rest of Australia. I too have dreams. I too want to be somebody. But stop just looking at me and projecting your prejudice towards the colour of my skin to stop me from being who I am based on your perception of, perception of who you think I am. Another powerful decision you made in the speech was you had a Prime Minister there and you would turn to him and say, Mr. Prime Minister. It was directed not at the whole audience. This speech, you used the device of the Prime Minister being there to really personalise and point the address. That's correct. 
I wanted him to be part of my journey and I wanted him to listen to me because it's a completely different paradigm being born white in this country and the privileges that come with it. No matter what ranking of the social ladder you are, middle class, whatever class, it's still a privilege. And I, as a white male prime minister, I wanted to be able to relate to him as a person, but for him to actually stop and listen every time I said his name and his title. And you went hard. I felt as though you didn't pull any punches, like a, a paragraph um, which we're going to play the the little snippet of the speech that survives um, in in terms of video at the end of this interview. But this bit, um, in less than 60 years, the people of my tribe have gone from being an independent nation to cultural prisoners to welfare recipients. Welfare recipients. Is yeah. it any wonder that there are so many problems facing Indigenous Australians today? Prime Minister, I want you to gain a brief picture a brief of the life. A brief picture of my life. Yeah. That's it's, right. It's great. It's a really... Um, you, you really eyeball him. And um, can you take us back to the day? Did you get to meet him beforehand? Was there any contact before, before the speech started? There was not any contact at all with the Prime Minister. The contact I only ever had was Philip Ruddock the night before when we were on the table at the Kamoka Lodge where he was the then Minister for Indigenous Affairs and I hadn't really met the Prime Minister before. And then after I... I gave that speech, then I met him in person afterwards and then I met him like in other, I got invited to so many other events yeah. after that. But I, I think in hindsight now, like I was so young at that time and being so young and being so blunt, not that I've not I've changed, I have not changed, I'm still very blunt when I believe something is wrong and I want to right a wrong, I think at that point and in that time where we were as a country and where we were here in Cape York as in our leadership and the psychology and, and the, the, the consciousness of our leadership, we had moved but we hadn't moved far enough and we were still facing these issues and being able to address the Prime Minister so bluntly and potent um, at that point in time, I look back at that and I get goosebumps and I go, where did you get the courage from at such a young age? Mm. I, was, I think that as well, reading it. And and the, the idea that comes next, the one where you say, because as you say, normally we get a barrage of statistics and it, I think it allows some people to separate from the issue. Say, so, yeah, yeah, numbers, numbers, heard them before, yeah, entrenched problem, can't do anything about it. And that's the kind of internal monologue that numbers can create. But you give, us a, you give us a very simple number and the number is 15 and that's your class. And so suddenly we all can picture our primary school class. I certainly can. Um, and you take us back to your 15 members of the class and 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 – and that becomes really the most vivid part of the speech. Can you describe that? I, I think with the statistics of my class, I mean, they were not just my class. They were my cousins. They were my family. Not just as in your class become your family. I was related to every single one of these children and I knew their potential. And I knew and I wanted to portray that 
had these children had more support or had these children had people believe in them and had the system been not so racist, they could become somebody? And why is it that just I, why is it that me, I shouldn't be the statistic, I should be and they should be the norm in the expectation of being great? And I wanted to paint that picture. And I think when I look back at it, I did a really good job of painting that picture. But like even thinking about that now, there's still more of my classmates are dead. Like they've just passed away. And I'm not even 40. And I'd like to revisit that now and be able to do another speech about it and where we've really changed or have we changed. Because these numbers, I mean, as you say, these are numbers from 2003 and already you could say that you were the only girl who had completed secondary education and got a degree. Uh, you were the only girl in the class who did not have a child at 15. Of the boys in the class, you said seven had been incarcerated, for some for murder, rape and assault. And of the 15, there were only three of us who were not alcoholics. Most of them are alcoholics now. Yeah, and you said that um, in the class uh, there'd already been suicides. Four in the class had already committed suicide, and you were 22 years old. Well, yep. ha- how would those numbers update now? Oh, uh, well, we just had another. We had two of them, very two of my schoolmates the other day, uh, the other week back in Kawanyama. Like right now, um, we're having five funerals a month in our community for a small community and I just I just can't keep up with it, Tony. Mm. Like I'm going to have to think about the people in my class. Like there are still a lot of people in my class who are not just not just alcoholic, they're drug addicts, mm. you know, and it, it's gotten worse. And like here now, I run my own business. I'm independent. I have two degrees. I've invested in real estate. Like I've done what a normal middle-class white kid would be doing across Australia. I've backpacked around the world like most white kids without, you know, obligation. Yeah. As in cultural obligation to come back and save their race. I've had to step away and I do that. And I look at these kids now and I'm like, oh, my God. that's And the only, the only thing I can come back to is an education because the choices I've made where I've gone to is because of an education. Yeah. It, it really is that moment where you're propelled on a different trajectory because someone Correct. takes hold of you. Yeah. Correct. And, you know, like going back to community and working in community, people don't realise how much government control have on the lives of these community of Aboriginal people. And if people want to want to know more about it, jump online and check out my website and have a look at the research papers we've done. You then get into the policy guts of the speech where you say that education and health are the two major issues that are... Correct. Well, I mean, there is a correlation. There is definitely a correlation between education and health. But if you initially don't have the education to understand your choices in health, they are extremely important. Yeah. And so in some ways you'd say that the – and this comes across in the speech as well, that edu- education is the great shining ideal, the life changer, the thing that needs investment, that needs good policy, that needs 
you know, governments and really everyone working towards uh, achieving a solution. Um, has there been any achievement in this area in the in the fifth in the seventeen years since this speech? No, to be really frank with you, not in the state system. I just don't think that giving a kid a bike to come to school every day is justified but the kid finishes grade 10 or grade 12 and still can't read or write. Oh, yeah, and they've had 15 bikes in that entire time that they've been to school. What a benefit does a bike have in keeping a child to school at school? It's part and part not just government, it's community attitudes, but I don't blame my people in years and years and years of failure and intergenerational failure in the education system. Their attitudes toward education is based on the current system that they've been given, that they've been through. And so what does, the, what does a better system look like? I think, have you, well, look, it's, it's a bit difficult to say what a better system look like. I think in general, a system that is making sure that a grade three student is reading at year three level and or even year four level, but not below, not a preppy. And why are we passing children through the system if they are not reading at year three? Why are we putting them up to year four and then year five? And that the gap of them, of the level they're at and the level they should be, just widens and widens and then they fall off the system and become an, an adult with the not, not the skills that they require to succeed in life. So you go harder and, and, and impose tougher standards. I often hear that the standards or at least the opportunity um, that almost at prep level, if there hasn't been the exposure to texts and to words and to reading and the kind of um, early literacy care that goes with good kindergarten and prep programs, um, do you feel that's where people get lost? I think so. I mean, as a mum myself with a kid going through that and – you know, there is the expectation of my kid being at this level, but then when I go into community and him being around the same kids at his level, he's far a lot more advanced than these kids. And I'm thinking, well, where is the system breaking down here if you are having the same KPIs as these other schools and it's a state system? Like the Australian curriculum, the national curriculum is 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 for all children. And I just think that, Whilst the, the system needs to change and have tougher stands on early learning years, but also it needs to be a community attitude as well. You again addressed the Prime Minister directly in the speech. Prime Minister, our health is getting worse, not better. And you give the example of a good GP, a good doctor um, around your town who left did the normal thing of a stint and then you couldn't hold on again is that a a problem that persists to this day the statistics to this day around health is appalling i mean people in remote community are dying of preventable diseases like diabetes i mean i had a conversation with uh, a particular person in the community a couple of years ago who wanted to build um, a drop-in diabetes center and I said to that particular person, I said, you're validating the disease. Why would you want to spend a million dollars on a drop-in diabetes center for people with diabetes when you're validating the disease? I said, it's a preventable disease. I said, why aren't we 
reinvesting and being proactive in ensuring that children understand that drinking 10 litres of Coke a day for the rest of their life is going to cause this. Yeah. Why aren't we preventing this disease and reinvesting in education and better pathways for employment prospects and making it attainable? Because these children are the backbone of the community, but why should we be validating this preventable disease? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that links again to education, doesn't it? Exactly. That's why I will not deter away from an equitable education. I mean, we need to be able to say to children and parents of children, yes, your child is in year three. Your child can't read or write. What are we going to do? We are not bringing them up to year four until they reach that level. Right now, the system is just passing them through the system. And then they get to year 12 and they can't read or write. Still. You conclude the speech, you, you bring it to a head by saying that, you know, Prime Minister, we recognise that governments cannot solve our problems for us. And, and this is the balance and, you know, the whole question of government care, government investment versus autonomy. When is that line overstepped? Um, this stuff is so hard to balance, isn't it? Oh, it it's so difficult to balance. But at the same time, I've now worked in a position where I've gone in on the ground, I've looked at the existing policy and I've provided evidence-based research to support either to tweak policy, but from an Indigenous person, I was trying to basically action what I said to the Prime Minister, that we need to take responsibility. I was one of the people wanting to take responsibility and going back to the government, having 250 to over 250 individual mums and young women who want change to say that the current unemployment system isn't working. Why aren't we investing in educating the mums so they can become the best advocates for their children? And to an extent, the systematic failure and the system itself, the attitudes in the system needs to change. Do you think that when... The government heard those words, which was it was obviously a massive issue, the the domestic violence and and the sexual assault within communities, and and it became a thing that Howard grabbed onto individually. He became the guy who thought, well, I'll fix it by doing this. I will reduce the rights of Aboriginal people in order to to confront this problem. Do you do you think he wanted to hear your sort of words? Was he were you asking for that sort of help? I don't think regardless of what I was asking for at that point in time, it, it, look at it now, Tony, look at violence towards women now. It's only kind of coming out, yeah. coming out as a national problem and yeah. it's not just a black issue. And that was like 15 years ago when I said that violence is a problem in our community and even though... At that point, I highlighted it as a child who's lived it and seen it and witnessed it every day of my life for the very few people I love and for the Prime Minister to actually respond. I mean, it was all good for just throwing money into more services, but the services never really helped people. Like, I'm no psychologist on this, nor am I, you know, like I could look back at the, the social impact and if I've really seen change there hasn't been much change. There's only been more incarceration rates of those who were violent, who yeah. once were children, and the increase in incarceration, the very, I mean, 
I guess that's what Australia is built upon. The the very much so the the, the penal system and the way you penalise individuals. But there's no real. See, I'm more of a social investment in actually providing the services and and helping people so they can help themselves. Absolutely, and and so you round up the speech. Um, the fact that you are here today is a good start in the process of change and I urge you as a fair-minded man, not just as Prime Minister, to become a part of the solution. I stand up here as a proud Aboriginal woman, a kookaburra woman, as well as a criminologist, a criminologist and I thank you for your time and attention and you brought it to a conclusion. What was the response, Tanya, as you sat down? Did you feel good? Um, I kind of felt in my heart that what I had to say at that point was guided by people before me and other women leaders before me, but I knew at the same time I was going to go back to my community and get a big backlash because it exposed something that they wanted to keep amongst themselves and that the grandiose leaders themselves had grandiose ideas to deal with this themselves and they were in elected positions to do that. And I knew I was doing the right thing and I knew in the future, like I knew going back, this is going to really out me and it did. Did you did you feel pressure afterwards? Were people angry? Oh, I did. I did. I had people saying, oh, well, you need to go and tell this and I, I, and I had people angry because I'd exposed, I'd exposed, you know, the wrongs that I'd seen wrong. But they forgot that that was my story too. And I had a right to my story. And that was the stuff about the young girls and women that were being raped. That's what people were angry about on the community that you said talked about that. Yep. There was this denial. There was this denial that everything was all gloomy. Yeah. There's this denial. And, And I went back into it. And, you know, being, you know, being abused in the street because I should not have said that. Mm. ATSIC remained for, I guess, another year or so before that situation changed. But I presume this kind of launched you a bit. You became, everyone recognised your eloquence and within four years you were Young Australian of the Year. Is there any sort of favourite story you've got of the kind of life of jetting around the country and doing those jobs? Have you got a, a day <laughs> that stands out for you? Uh, there, there are so many moments um, when I was Young Australian of the Year where my heart just was aligned with whatever the universe was trying to tell me. Um, I remember quite clearly when I was in Kananara and there was a young mum. There was two events. There was a young mum and three of her daughters who'd driven about four hours to come and meet me because she could relate to my story. She was a bit older than me and the statistics that I read out she could just resonate with and when she met me she just cried and I was crying for no apparent reason because I didn't know his story but she just was crying and hugging me and I I actually could feel her pain and when we sat down I realized at that point in time that I was doing the right thing I was not only telling my story and speaking, trying to convey an important message, but it was actually touching people's lives and resonating with other young women and Indigenous women. 
And there was another event, and I think I was in Bowen or Rockhampton um, in Queensland, and another incident where another mum who bought her daughters and her son and had had driven and wanted to catch me and just wanted to for them to meet me. And these were the moments that really stood out where I realised that I had a very important job to do is to continue doing what I'm doing and don't give up, which I haven't. And Tanya, in terms of the Prime Minister of that day, uh, John Howard, I think of him as having a really chequered history on Indigenous affairs, the apology that didn't come and and the intervention as well. Um, How do you feel about him and how do you think he responded and... What what were your feelings about Prime Minister Howard? Look, I found Prime Minister Howard kind of, in a way, like not knowing. Uh, I can't really, I mean, whoever was in government at that point in time for Indigenous Affairs, we still had to play a bipartisan approach to really get our issues across the board as Indigenous advocates, as Indigenous people, because we had no statutory, like not not an organisation, but we had no rights in an act to form our rights to be able to speak and I think the build-up towards the Prime Minister it it was also a collective consciousness too for Australia Mm. because once once we awaken as a country the collective consciousness tend to then start building and building and I mean look at for me I was at university and the thousands and thousands of people who walked across the bridge yeah. in Sydney. And that was just one of many as we as a country and people and the consciousness of our shift for equity around our First Nations people, but across so many other aspects. Look at just recently Black Lives Matter in America. We are now as a country not accepting blatant racism. People are losing their jobs because of the attitudes. We are now as a country not accepting And it's just collectively, once we start demanding more and it comes from the top, doesn't necessarily come from the top, but we as a country and people start demanding that from our leaders, things change. Well, Tanya Major, I think you are one of the reasons that change is happening, uh, however incrementally, and hopefully it accelerates. And I also wonder, in terms of ATSIC, and you were there speaking as an ATSIC representative, do we miss a body like ATSIC? Do you wish there was still a representative body? We do. We do need a representative body. I mean, um, we have no voice in the state level and the federal level. We have no voice in our own country. And until we have something like affirmative action, there is a percentage of Indigenous people like New Zealand that needs to be in place in Parliament where the main decisions affect our lives and the understanding and the right people in there, not just ticking a box because I'm Indigenous. Yeah. Until that changes, nothing will really change. I mean, look at right now the constitutional right debate across our country and where we are for recognise. That's kind of fallen off the radar, but yeah. it's so critical and so important. Well, it affects us in so many ways. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for your time. Um, We play our speech of the week, and I'm definitely going to play the snippet of the speech to Prime Minister Howard, and I might play a little bit of the TED Talk as well, um, just to feature your speaking style and so people can see what talent you have in that area. But thank you very much for being part of Speakola.
No, thank you so much, Tony, for your time and your uh, consistency in making sure this happens. <laughs> no worries, <laughs> We've been Tony. really busy. <laughs> yeah, we have. But thank you so much, Tony. It's time for Speech of the Week, and that's where we play the speech that we've talked about. And this week, it is Tanya Major's Here I Am. The good news in relation to this speech is that there's a wonderful snippet of video that survives as part of Tanya's compilation package that was put together when she became Young Australian of the Year. About a minute or so of the speech is contained within The not-so-good news is I've made inquiries all week trying to find the rest of the speech, and no luck. The Australia Day Honours people didn't have it, the ABC Archive doesn't have it, the Cape York Partnership doesn't have it. So if you're out there and you know how that compilation video on YouTube was made by the Australia Day people, because you've got the rest of the speech, I'd love to put the whole thing up. So get in touch, Tony at TonyWilson.com.au. But let's enjoy what we've got. One minute of a powerful speech with Tanya eyeballing a Prime Minister. Here I am. In less than 60 years, the people of my tribe have gone from being an independent nation to cultural prisoners to welfare recipients. Is it any wonder that there are so many problems facing Indigenous Australians today? Prime Minister... I want you to gain a brief picture of the life of young people in communities. When I was growing up in Kawanyama, there was 15 people in my class. Today, I'm the only one person that's gone to university and has finished secondary education successfully. I'm the only girl in my class who did not have a child at 15. Of the boys in my class, seven have been incarcerated for rape, murder and assault. Of the 15, there are only three of us who are not alcoholics. And Prime Minister, one of the saddest thing to note, the saddest thing I must report to you is that four of my classmates have already committed suicide. And I'm 22 years old. Now, if this paints a grim picture of community life for you, it should. Life as an Aboriginal person is not easy in any setting. Life as a young Aboriginal woman is even harder. If you want to read the rest of the speech, it is up in text form on the Speakola website, so check it out there. Because the speech of the week was so short, I thought I'd add another Tanya Major. This one is her speaking at a TEDx event in Melbourne, just after she completed the Generation One Roadshow, and the topic of this talk, putting the unity into community. Good afternoon, everybody. Given that I have 18 minutes to talk to you today, I'm going to make this really quick. Um, The topic of my conversation is putting unity back into community. How do we change a nation? For so long we've seen the plight of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people whitewashed across our television, in the news, we've seen snotty-nosed kids, two people fighting in the streets. We've had this perception of all black people are lazy, all black people are dull bludgers and they're a drain on the public purse. Well, actually, you're wrong. The other week, two weeks ago, we had a national uh, two-minute address to the nation, part of Generation One. And we had a young lady got up and said, this is Australia and I know we could do better. She talked about the plight of Indigenous people and that in 20 years' time, in one generation, we could change it. But before I go into that address, I want to give you a bit of background of who I am. 
Yes, I'm Tanya Major. I'm a Cockleberry woman and I'm from a remote community of Kaunyama. But before that, I have a story. I come from a tribe in a community with three tribes who were traditional owners. It was founded in 1905 by the Anglican Church. To this day, and like all other remote communities across Australia, Kaunyama faces high unemployment rate, poverty, low education, etc., etc. At 13 years old, I decided, I looked around, I mean, I used to go to church every Sunday with my auntie and we used to raise money and I used to raise money for kids in Africa because every time we used to turn on the television, I used to see World Vision and thought to myself, these kids actually need that. Little did I know that actually poverty and the issues of no food and hunger existed in my own backyard here in Australia. So at 13 years old, I decided, we need to take action. I grabbed all my grade eighters and I held a community rally against my, my council and my people and my leaders at the time because I was sick and tired of them getting up and saying, you are the future. Yet, they wouldn't let us make decisions, yet they wouldn't let us take control of our own lives and be active in our own right. So at 13 years old, I grabbed the 13 people in my class and I dragged them by the ear, because as you can see, I'm six foot two. <laughs> and I was bigger than the average child. So they had no choice but to follow me. Anyway, so I grabbed all these kids, we went to our leaders and we demanded, we demanded change. Still to this day, there has been slight change in my communities, but not much. So my presentation today will be about putting unity back into community and how do we unify a nation? How do we bring not just these 13 kids from Kaunyama to come and talk to their leaders, but a nation. The plight of Aboriginal people, um, Indigenous people in this country, has either been a black problem or a government problem, not an Australian problem. In fact, it's a disgrace. It's a huge disgrace. Because, you know, little does the average Australian know that it's only been 42 years since Indigenous people were given the right to vote or given the right to be counted as an Australian in this country. So to turn around and say, oh, the government give them too money, or there's too much attention, or this, or this, or this. Oh, sorry, it's my ear. I'll just get rid of that one. <laughs> so anyway, my background, you've heard about me, you know who I am. So far, so hope for Indigenous Australians, and what's working, and why. This is just a snippet of, in the last couple of years, people have come together to try and solve this complex issue that our country is facing. And I'm not going to go into details of who they are. Some have already have been mentioned, but these are just a few people in our country. Some of you have probably seen some of the stuff that I've been involved in, one of which was eight weeks travelling around Australia. Travelling around Australia in a big bus. It was nothing Australia's ever seen before. I travelled from Sydney all the way up to Northern Territory, Western Australia, all the way back down to Sydney in eight weeks to look at on-the-ground community success stories. Success stories, people who are on the ground doing their bit to make Australia a better place. I was in Karratha, um, sorry, Kununurra, and I was really, really taken back over. There was a few trips throughout Australia. I, I had no idea. I'm from the bush. I'm from Cape York. 
Yet you go to Carath or you go to Geraldton where somebody who don't know you, yet seen you on television or seen you do this, have a lot more respect for you. I was startled at how much of an impact I have had or continue to have on these young people in these communities. So whilst travelling on this bus for 88 weeks around Australia, I learnt that early on in my career I started in politics and I thought politics would be the ideal candidate, you know, to change the way our country thinks, to shift attitudes of our nation. And I thought, wow, what a fantastic opportunity, 21, in there, guns blazing, you know, Saturday nights, dancing on the bar, still back in there Monday morning, you know, and being a young person. And I soon realised that <sighs> politics isn't for me. Politics is about, quite frankly, schoolyard bullies. You know, trying to dig dirt and find out what the other person's doing. And, and I just figured, sorry, I'm, I, I, can't, I can't survive in this environment. Is this really going to change Australia? I bloody love Australia. You know, and I thought, no, nah, politics is not for me. The way we're going to move this country forward is by investing in people. Giving the people the opportunity to actually see and make a decision for themselves on what's going out there. How do we solve this long-standing problem that has been in the forefront of our nation for such a long time? And so on this bus for eight weeks, really reconfirmed my decision to believe in people. People, women have been travelling for three hours to meet me and hold my hand and for me to meet their daughter. I didn't know what to say, I mean, I, I seriously just could not believe, I was overwhelmed by the presence of people, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, coming up to me and saying thank you for opening up a new possibility for our country. And so, I figured, you know, here we are talking about this concept of unity and putting it back into community, but yet Indigenous people step into the mainstream society every day. You know, we step into your world, we have to conform to be accepted, ra-di-da-di-da. But at the end of the day, we're still not considered normal. I've got cousins, full-blood cousins, if you may use the caste system, who wants to be a Chinese chef, who yet wants to be a professional martial arts star like Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan, because that's the only real influence we have of Asia, because every Asian friend of mine who comes to Kaunyama must somehow be related to Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan. <laughs> And, and I figured, this, this concept, I, I've been struggling with it. I got back from um, New York last week, and to be honest, this, this whole topic, I decided to send through to Rod at 3 a.m. from Miami. And I figured, little do Australia know that this whole concept of unity, if they're not considering us as normal people who have aspirations, who have desires to become a, a chef in a Chinese restaurant, or a, or a pole dancer, I don't know. And I thought to myself, you know what I'd love? You know what I'd love? I'd love my own TV reality show. I seriously would, and I don't want it on SBS, I don't want it on ABC, I want it on primetime. <laughs> because I want Australians to decide for themselves the issues that we face. Little do they know that I hang in gay clubs. Reason why, I'm six foot two and the men love tall women. I can compare shoe sizes because I'm a size 12. <laughs> I go into a normal bar, you know, men always come up to me and I'm like, look, why would I compromise fashion to suit your ego? <laughs> you know, these are the things that I want to normalise. This is the only way we're going to unify this country is we perceive as being normal. There's so much potential out there. I believe in Australia. I mean, since the address, I have statistics 
that proven since our address, our national address, we had 2.4 million hits on our, on our site, which was just overrun. We couldn't keep up with it. Yet only 40,000 people within the whole week actually signed up. But within the first couple of hours, 12,000 people, which, but which grew our member base from 40, from our eight weeks travel all around Australia to 80,000 members to this day with a population of 21.5 million. Australia, that's not good enough. In 20 years' times, 20 years' time, we could possibly have seven Indigenous swimmers, six doctors, lawyers, AFL players, <laughs> rugby players, <laughs> Tanya Majors. The timing's right, post-apology. You know, the timing's right for us to change. We've got to get out there. We've got to break down these barriers. And by the way, if there's anybody here who's interested in a reality TV show, I'm your woman. <laughs> but... And if you do want to change and have an impact on society, I'm your woman. Because not only will you actually come with me into my gay clubs at night when I party, you'll also come with me in an environment where Australia's never actually seen before. In Cape York, in Kaunyam, in Wujil, in Pomparau, in Arakun, dancing watermelon with my people, chasing a snake, if possible. You know? And these are the revolving or evolving young, untapped potential we have in this country that so wants to be a part of the wider Australian movement. And, you know, I, I urge you today to, I mean, you're all tired. I see you fell asleep here a couple of times. You know, I already see you over there half asleep. And, and I understand, you've been here all day and I've got seven minutes. So, and I, I just thought I'd come up here and impromptu and, you know, just give you me. Give you me and give you the thought that <laughs> we've got to do something now. You know, I'm just sick and tired of... My mother never had an education. My mother was born into this country and was not even considered Australian. My mother went to grade four. You know, my grandmother weren't even given the right to have an education, my grandfather. But my, both my grandmother and my grandfather made sure that me and my other cousins will all finish grade 12 and all actually get a job. I have a brother who's a carpenter, a mechanic, a sister who's a mother of seven children, a younger brother who wants to be an electrician, and me... Well, that's just Tanya, you know. And I just want to urge wider Australia that, you know, give us the opportunity, step into our world. If you want to put unity into community, understand us and make your own decisions. For so long, the responsibility and the plight of Aboriginal affairs has been a government problem. Look at where the government's going. You know, it's an Australian problem. They're not doing much. We have to urge them. We have to get on board. The change has got to take place by individuals like yourselves. Not having the conversations. Conversations don't change lives. Decisions do. Get out there. Take action. Look at ways of... Even action in the decision of how you perceive an Indigenous person in this country. You know, and how you perceive... And I fully believe that... The only way we're going to actually really change it on a mass scale and so that one child and two child in Arakun does not miss out because it's all about saving a certain few and only the few with the amount of family with support. But what about the rest? Where are the rest going to go? We've got to step in there. You've got to come in and step into our world and see what it's like to be knocked back in a club because of the colour of your skin to this day. To see what it's like to, be, to walk into a cafe and not be served because of the colour of your skin. It happens to this day. I have cousins who've never been clubbing before because they got told they're too drunk and they refuse to go out. But yet they're 18, 19-year-olds who want to go out, meet, flirt, have fun, party. 
you know, I just fully believe that the potential in this country is just untapped and that we, it is huge possibilities and us actually changing our attitude and shifting our attitude. And that's what I've taken the role on for Generation One, is about shifting people's attitudes and, and also drawing on a success story for, for Indigenous people and so wider Australia to actually see and recognise that there are people out there who are participating, not just in sport, because that's how we're perceived. We're either a sport person or an artist. All of us don't have ambitions to be sport people or artists. Yeah, I just want to share that with you, and I do hope that one day in 20 years' time, or 10 years from now, that my nephews or my nieces won't actually have the burden. I call it a burden, because if I had a choice, to be honest, I'd be living in America right now, I'd be living in New York. If I had a choice so that they don't have the same decisions to make like mine, the burden of carrying a society and carrying a nation that has been you know, disadvantaged for such a long time and being outcast in their own country. The timing is now, and as I said, conversations don't change lives, decision does. And right now we have a decision to make. And that decision is to either sit down and do nothing and shut up, or stand up and be a part of this new, evolving, emerging, multicultural Australia. Thank you. Well, that's another episode over. You've made it to the end. And hopefully that's a good sign that you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, let us know, either with an email, tony at tonywilson.com.au, or leave a comment on the iTunes page for the Speak Ola podcast. Big thank you to Tanya Major for giving up her time and being such a spectacular guest. Find out everything she's up to at tanyamajor.com. Get her as a speaker at your next event. If you enjoyed this episode, there are five previous episodes. And if you want to find out more of the Speak Ola story, I was a guest on the Conversations podcast a few weeks back with Richard Feidler. If you search the Speech Collector, you'll find a bit of the background to the website there. Thank you to David Brady for our wonderful theme. I listened to it over and over. Thank you, James McCormick, for suggesting our guest and finding the speech. And a big thank you to you for getting to the end, which this is. Speak on.